0: If you already know this, then you can thank your biology teacher, probably in, in high school. But there are things about each of us that were determined for us uh, before we were even born, and we call them hereditary traits. And they include things like eye color, uh, childhood nearsightedness. Thanks, Dad, Mom. Yeah, uh, tongue rolling. Right? That sounds weird on the podcast. And let me just do this. Can everybody just uh, fold your hands together real quick? And now if you know you're left and right, any right thumbers, anybody put the right thumb over? That is a, is a hereditary trait according to the internet. Assuming that most people do left over right. You can unfold now unless you... That wasn't like a, and fold them in your lap, you know, that wasn't one of those type of things. But so we get these hereditary traits from our parents, uh, and not only that, but if you think about it, our lives have all been irreversibly impacted by our ancestors. One quick example, very few of us here today were born as citizens of a different country, some, but not very many. So as citizens of the United States, we are here because our ancestors immigrated here from somewhere else at a certain time, maybe a long time ago, maybe not that long ago. If you have a famous grandparent or great grandparent, then at least in some show and tell in elementary school, you shared uh, in their glory. And if you have an infamous grandparent or great grandparent, my understanding is that uh, General Longstreet in the Civil War kind of Either it was Lee's fault that he did this or it was his fault that he did it cost the Confederacy, the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, We share sometimes in the shame of our ancestors on that. Uh, But just as we have been impacted by our ancestors, we inherit traits from our birth parents. We've also inherited a few things from Adam that greatly impact us. In fact, all of the relationships that we have with all of our ancestors, even more than our relationship with our parents and what we have from them, there is no relationship we have with anybody so significant as the one that we all have with Adam. Uh, We're going to talk about aspects of what we've inherited from Adam. There are three things I want to go through with that today. So uh, this is a parenthesis in Genesis, but an important one before we move from chapter three to chapter four. But from Adam, we have first, we've inherited our humanity. Uh, just as Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, that we talked about uh, last week, uh, tells us that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Paul, in Acts chapter 17, wrote this. In the people of Athens, he said this, The God who made the world and everything in it, so his mind is clearly on Genesis, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So uh, Adam kind of foretold through what God had revealed to him, what was coming, that Eve was the mother of all living. Then Paul looks back and says, yeah, and Adam is the father of all living. So uh, to be human is to have a real biological connection with Adam and and Eve, our first father, our first parents. Uh, You and I each have a human nature from our birth parents, who received it from their birth parents, who received it from their birth parents, and so on, all the way back to Eve, who received her human nature from Adam's rib that God used to form her, and Adam received his human nature directly from God himself when he was formed from the dust of the ground. We are one human race, right, Uh, with that. And, And that's from a connection we see in Scripture all the way back from Adam and from Eve. So from Adam, we have inherited first our humanity. Uh, We also have inherited, number three, our corruption, not a typo. This obviously is intentional. So pay attention to the the numbering on your notes. Now, how you do it is up to you. Uh, Point number two is the biggest, which is why, anyway. Third, we have inherited corruption from Adam. Let's just do a quick survey of what this means, like a sinful type of corruption, right? According to Psalm 58, verse 3, the psalmist says that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So those who are wicked are wicked from birth, but sadly, this didn't just apply to the wicked. In his psalm of confession, Psalm 51 verse 5, David says and admits, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And it has nothing to do with his mom. He's not saying this something about her. This is something that's true about him. When I was conceived, I was sinful. David admits this also in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul would quote that passage and others when he says in Romans 3.23, kind of a, a climactic, easily memorizable statement For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is true even of those who would eventually trust in Christ. Not true of somebody else. This is true of us. Paul points the Ephesians to this. He says, look, we we all once lived in the passions of our sinful flesh, carrying out the sinful desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All these different authors and all these different portions of Scripture really have the exact same message that we are corrupted. We are sinful in our nature from birth that reveals itself in various different types of sins. So the point is that every human being born of normal parentage is born with a sinful human nature. We are cursed with sin-infected hearts from birth. We aren't sinners because we sin, as if that's an evaluation that comes after we've attempted things. We actually sin because we are sinners. You don't get sick when you start coughing, you cough because you're sick, And it's the same thing with the outward aspect of our sin, like Jesus was saying, right? It's kind of like all of these things that are on the outside, that's from what happened on the inside. It's not like sin doesn't come from the outside in, sin comes from the inside out. So you have a rotten, corrupted root. And that's why lies, um, adultery, bloodshed, all those different types of things, even that we confessed together this morning, that's where those things come from. They are the fruit of a corruption that's inside of us. The Heidelberg Catechism says that we have this type of a corrupt nature that came, quote, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. It wasn't originally, but it is now part of our humanity. And if you are a member here at Risen King Church and you doubt that children are sinful from birth, that we actually offer a special class for you where you can learn all about it. Uh, It's called the nursery, (laughs) right? The Canons of Dort, another historic Christian document, explain it this way. Man, Adam, brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall, that is to say, being corrupt. He brought forth corrupt children. Corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants, except for Christ alone. Not by way of imitation, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin. That's that quote that we read from David. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath. They're pointing to Ephesians there. Unfit for any saving good, Inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. You can't save yourself, and without the work of God, you don't even want to do anything about your sin problem. You, are, you can be perfectly content in your wretched depravity all on your own. Anything else, you need God. Right? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Next week, we'll begin to see this sinful depravity or corruption uh, of Adam's offspring in just the first generation. Adam and Eve's son, Cain. The first sin we have recorded, right, would be eating of the fruit. And then the second is murdering your brother because that corruption had been passed on. Sin had changed, right, and infiltrated, infected them. And then by Genesis 6, it's not just one of two sons that's evil, but all of humanity will just reek of this sinful corruption. And today, this is as true of us as it was of them. So uh, if you are a human this morning, that's because of your connection with Adam. If you are a sinner this morning, this is because you inherited that from Adam and Eve, the first sinners. And so far, so good, right? I mean, not like you're glad that I'm reminding you of this, uh, but I imagine that you're all probably with me at this point. Uh, But point number two, the one I skipped, that's a doozy. In order to understand one of the most significant things that we inherit from Adam, we need to jump far forward from Genesis all the way uh, into the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And this is our text for this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. So if you have a chance to turn there, uh, you can read. uh, follow along as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, changes thoughts. He's, he's going to explain a couple things. So we just started a parenthesis. Mine has a dash. We talked about that a little bit last week. Verse 12, Paul started a statement and then stopped, right? Just as X, and when you say just as this one thing, you have to say, so also this other thing. But he doesn't say that in verse 12 because he wants to lay a little bit of groundwork, probably two different parentheses on that. So he says just as, and then doesn't finish his thought, but he comes back to it in verse 18. So what he started in verse 12, he's gonna repeat and finish in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. From Adam, we have inherited humanity, And we inherited corruption, but we also have inherited guilt. From Adam, we have inherited guilt. And that may not sound like a big deal, but it really is. And I want to take the time today to explain. Because when I say that we have inherited guilt from Adam, I don't mean that we have a guilty conscience when we sin. We do, right? And that, that is uh, the work of the Spirit in us. It is part, I think, of that whole package of being human. But that's not what this is talking about. The guilt that we have inherited from Adam is a legal verdict of guilty due to breaking a law, right? Break a law, at the end of that trial, you are Guilty and declared to be such. In other words, you are condemned because of the law that you have broken. You're you're subject to the sentencing of a crime which you have been found guilty of. And at first thought, this may not sound very different from what we've already talked about through that whole corruption, right? Like, of course God says I'm guilty. Look at all my sin. (laughs) You pointed that out in spades today, Peter, Uh, right? Like, the the biggest thing that we've talked about, uh, Jesus... We are horrible sinners, right? Uh, But that's not what we're talking about again. You have sinned. Sin deserves punishment. You deserve punishment. But we need to answer the question, what sin are you guilty of? You are guilty of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. That's what Paul is writing about here in Romans. You are guilty of committing that sin. Court trials will always proceed along these type of lines, right? There's a crime that's been committed. um, In the course of that trial, then there is a verdict. And if the verdict is guilty, there's a sentencing and a punishment, right? Nod, if you're with me. A crime, a verdict. And then a punishment. We don't want to see any of those things flipped. Well, in the case of Romans chapter 5, based on Genesis chapter 3, the crime is the sin of eating from the forbidden tree. The verdict is guilty. And the punishment is death. I'm going to leave this up because I'm going to walk through aspects of Romans 5 again because I want you to see where these things pop up. So have, have your text open to walk along these things, okay? Verse 12, just as sin, the crime, came into the world through one man, and death, the punishment, through sin, the crime, and so death, the punishment, spread to all men because all sinned, crime. Verse 15, for if many died, punishment, through one man's trespass, the crime. Verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass, the crime, brought condemnation, which is a verdict of guilt. You are guilty, you are condemned. One man's trespass brought that verdict. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, the crime, death... The punishment reigned through that one man. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass, crime, led to condemnation, verdict, for all men. And then verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the crime, the many were made sinners, made criminals, By the one crime, the many were made criminals. The same thing as when he's saying by the one man's disobedience or sin, the many were made sinners. So hopefully you can see the aspect of there's the the crime or the sin or the disobedience, and then there's a verdict as that is evaluated, and then the sentencing is rendering, and it's the punishment of death. We at least kind of see, in my mind it's linear, but it doesn't fit on the keynote to do that in a horizontal, so I had to do it vertical, try to be consistent with the keynote. Crime of eating. Verdict of guilty, punishment of death. You are awaiting your execution, punishment, because God has declared you guilty in the verdict, and your crime was Adam's one sin in the garden, his first sin. That is what this passage is teaching. Now, you have added to your guilt, You have multiplied your crimes, but you start off guilty because of that sin. It's easy to miss if you read this quickly. This is exactly Paul's point in verse 12. Perhaps one of the most clear and significant sentences of just a few phrases found in this entire passage, right at the end of verse 12, look at it, because all sinned. When, Paul? In that One sin. Death. Sin came into the world through one man. And he uses one so many times in this, right? Hopefully you hear that as we read it. One, 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 one. And he repeats that point. This all sinned is you and me and everyone else. And then he repeats the same point in verse 18. One trespass. One. The sin of eating that fruit One trespass led to a condemnation, the verdict of guilt subject to its punishment. The one trespass led to condemnation for all men. We are guilty of the sin that Adam committed. According to God, when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam sinned, I sinned. And I'm sure that sounds a bit tricky, right? Because you were not there, right? They're like, if I ate it, what did it taste like? I don't remember because I wasn't there. I didn't eat it. What are you talking about? You didn't see the tree, I'm not saying that you, you did and you forgot. No, you didn't see the tree. You didn't take the fruit. You didn't eat the fruit. All of that is absolutely true. But God says you are guilty of that sin nonetheless, which raises a huge question, which would be, why? I hope that question's on the tip of your tongue right now, maybe with a little bit of angst, right? Maybe with a little bit of frustration, Probably right along with the why, there's really two options, uh, unless you already know the answer, in which case you're like, oh, I love this truth, uh, which you should, and hopefully by God's grace we will by the end. But you're either saying why, or you're saying three other little words. Anybody guess? That's not fair. Points for Lois. And if you're not asking why or objecting that's not fair, then you either already know the answer or you already aren't paying attention. Why are we guilty of Adam's sin? And there's one answer that just absolutely won't do it all. One ancient writer said that Adam was like a prototype. Uh, Truly human, but that he was a prototype. Not like an example for us. He sinned, he was declared guilty for his sin, he suffered the punishment of death for his sin. Then we follow in his example, so we sin. Uh, We are declared guilty for our sin, and we die as punishment for our sin. Now, on the one hand, that is true, but it is very clearly not what this text is teaching. And that writer, ancient writer, like third, fourth century writer, very clearly was reinterpreting this text and using that as, oh, that's what this teaching, he's reinterpreting this text to teach that we are not born with a sinful nature at all. He would accept that we inherited humanity. He would reject that we even inherited corruption. And that is clearly unbiblical, as we already worked through together this morning. Uh, In case you're interested, that writer's name was Pelagius. He was condemned as a heretic, which is a teacher of non-Christian ideas that are contrary to the biblical gospel. That is not what this text is teaching. And in seeking to avoid it, he was really trying to escape the sinfulness of humanity that's taught in Scripture. So that's one answer that won't do. Well, why are we guilty like Adam? Oh, just because we sin just like Adam sinned. It's like, well, we do, but it's just not what this text is talking about. And actually just says we aren't guilty of Adam's sin. But the text says we are. Why are we guilty of Adam's sin? Well, another very popular answer to this question, why are we guilty of Adam's sin, is that we were present with Adam. We were present in Adam physically as his future offspring. So when he sinned, we also sinned. And, and then there are texts that show there's similarities to that in other, other elements of it. It's like, oh, okay, somebody who's uh, physically present in a father or grandfather, even before they're born, right? There's some association with those type of things. Now, it is true that you were physically by great distance, present in Adam, genetically, right? Because you inherited your humanity from him. So you do have to have that sort of a biological connection in that type of a thing. You, you inherited your humanity from Adam, so you could rightly say you were genetically in him. However, this does not adequately explain why Paul says you are guilty of how many of Adam's sins? One. Did Adam only commit one sin? absolutely did not only commit one sin, right? And then you can start working your way through. Why why just that one sin? Or why am I not guilty of my dad's sins that happened before I was born? Why are my children not guilty of my sins before they were born, which I am not and they are not and we're not said to be guilty in any of Adam's multitude of sins over the course of that. We are told we are guilty of one sin. So this genetic connection really can't explain that. It it sort of falls apart. It also misses what we're going to see is the connection between Adam and Christ that is at the heart of this passage. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. Why are we guilty of Adam's sin? And the biblical answer to that question is that he was our representative. Adam was our representative. And you might say... No, thank you. Uh, I didn't vote for him. Not my representative. Maybe we get that on a bumper sticker. I'd like a different representative, please. But we don't have the right to make that choice. Uh, In fact, Adam didn't make that choice for himself. God didn't offer to him, hey, you could be the representative for the human race that'll come after you. He didn't ask. He just... Ordained that it would be, and it was. God sovereignly ordained that Adam would act as a representative for the original human race. And this rep- representative relationship is unique. No one else has represented the original human race in the same way, and no one else can. It was a one time choice, it was a one time representation. You know, as we think about this type of representation, even you might start thinking about other representatives and other type of relationships like this. Uh, There are some analogies that we find to try to understand what exactly is happening here in other parts of society, like rulers of a country. They represent their people and their citizens, right? We even call some of our elected officials representatives acting on our behalf. Uh, And with a ruler representing by nature of his leadership, uh, represents his citizens, uh, that country benefits or suffers based on the actions and decisions of its rulers. Parents, especially fathers, lead their families, and the whole family benefits or suffers based on their actions or decisions. Uh, Schools have administrators. Uh, armies have generals, teams have captains, churches have pastors or elders, but none of these examples of representation is as significant as our relationship with Adam. And like, we could try to speak like, look, uh, uh you heard, and it kind of, it, it gives a picture to sort of get us there, right? Like one person on the team fouls and the whole team is penalized. Well, okay, uh, but it's not the same, right? It, it moves us in the direction. It's, if you're looking that way, it kind of gets you looking in the right way, but it's not the same. Because there's like a difference, if you think about it, there's a difference between my kids suffering because of the consequences of my bad decisions. There's a difference between that and my kids being considered guilty of my bad decisions as if they had made those decisions themselves. But that's exactly what's happening here. Not just like, oh, we suffer because Adam sinned. No, we are guilty of committing Adam's sin. That's the nature of this representation. I hope you can see that's very unique. You see, we aren't just like Adam as our example, we're not just under Adam as our leader. We're actually in Adam as our representative. It's been described as a special union with Adam. Only Adam, and apparently only in that one first sin, did Adam represent us in this way. So, as our representative, when Adam sinned, he sinned on our behalf. And we then inherit as our own the guilt of his sin and are subject to the punishment for that sin because in God's eyes, according to God's judgment, we are guilty. Another word to describe that type of a, of a transfer of his guilt being kind of assigned to us is the word imputation. Uh, I hope uh, Reputation precedes me. I don't just throw out words to try to be uh, cool or (laughs) smart-sounding. So if it's on the screen, it's an important word, and this one is. Imputation is a a fancy word for something being transferred to you, Uh, something being attributed to you, something being applied to your account. And to be honest, it is kind of hard to give an illustration of this uh, because no one but God has the authority to do it, really, in the way that it's been done. Uh, But let me try in this. Keith isn't here today, uh, so I'll use him. He'd be right there, but he's not. Uh, Imagine that Keith robbed a bank, shot one of the guards, and then stole a car to get away. Now, I love Keith. He's a great friend. He's a good brother. Uh, He's a good husband and dad, too. So I don't want him to go to jail for the rest of his life. Uh, He gets arrested. He goes to trial. I go to the courtroom, and I tell the judge, Your Honor, I'd like for Keith's crimes to be put on my record instead. That's a bit crazy for me to do that. Uh, But if the judge allowed it, his record remaining clean, my record having those crimes transferred to it, that would be an example of imputation, something that wasn't mine Kind of laid on me as if it was mine. Uh, one of the smallest books in the New Testament is Paul's letter to Philemon. Are you familiar with Paul's letter to Philemon? Uh, in it, we learn that while Paul was in prison in Rome, he met a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae, where there was a friend and fellow worker of Paul named Philemon. Onesimus runs away from Philemon, lands in the anonymity of the massive city of Rome, finds his way to Paul, and is converted. Then Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, and he writes a letter to his friend Philemon, and he sends Onesimus back to Colossae, back to his master, with a letter in hand for him. So he become a Christian, sends him back to Philemon, and this is the appeal that Paul makes to his friend. So if you consider me your partners, right in the middle of the letter, receive him, the runaway slave, Onesimus, receive him as you would receive me. Hear this. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul is asking Philemon to impute Onesimus's wrongs, Onesimus's debts to Paul. Make me liable for his wrongs. Whatever money he cost you, give it to me, I will repay it. Do you see how that kind of an imputation works? And sometimes we have, we have motives imputed to us when somebody else assumes that the reason that Stan did this is because he was being incredibly generous, uh, when really, maybe he wasn't. I'm not even thinking of a real story. You just happen to be in the sightline, brother. You've got to be careful where you sit. So we could have motives. So we could even say, like, we're impugning someone's motives, be like, oh, they did this out of greed. Right? You're, you're transferring something, treating them based off of a reality, whether that's true or not. That's another level we could look at with imputation. According to God, the ultimate divine judge, Adam's sin has been imputed to all of his descendants. His sin has been, been attributed to all of us. His wickedness has been applied to your descendants. Account. We sinned in Adam. We are guilty in Adam. We will die in Adam. Paul echoes this same thought in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, where he says very succinctly, In Adam, all die. Justly. Fairly. Righteously. And this is a really important truth. Inheriting guilt from Adam by imputation, to keep the word there. And it's important for you to submit to in your hearts. Because it'd be like, man, I'm not convinced. It's like, I don't care. Okay? Like, I'm not saying you need to like it yet. I'm saying you need to bend your knee to it because this is God's word. And you need to submit to the truth of this. You have Adam's guilt to your account. You committed his sin because it's taught in the Bible. But second, because it leads us to Jesus in the gospel. One author said this, the kind of relationship which Adam sustains to men, mankind, is after the pattern of the relationship which Christ sustains to men. This is an explanation of what Paul writes in right in the middle of our passage. Romans chapter 5 verse 14 says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type. Type is such a great word for understanding the Bible, right? It's kind of the pattern we're trying to do in taking everything in Genesis and just running the well-worn path all the way to Jesus. Because when Jesus interpreted scripture and taught his disciples to do it, do you remember what the summary of that was? He just flipped through, well, okay, he unscrolled the whole thing, and he's like, hey, this is about me. Let me show you. Right Law, this is about me. Oh, prophets? yeah, me. Oh oh, writings, psalms, yep, me again. All of Scripture pointing to Christ, and a number of ways that happens in what we would describe as, as a type. Type means that what happens to one person in the Bible or a certain event, uh, a certain office, a certain image sometimes, one. Uh, one thing that happens points forward to something greater that will happen, typically in relation to Jesus. We've talked about this before. I've swapped type for shadow. Remember when we talked about that before? That these different things are a shadow of that which is to come. Adam was a shadow of Christ who would come and face similar circumstances to what Adam faced. Uh, Another example that I read about this week would be the ram in the thicket that God provided to Abraham to spare Isaac, right? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided, right? And if you just read Genesis, you be like, huh, I wonder what that's talking about. And then you fast forward and you're like, oh, Jesus, right? God's son would climb a mountain and be offered as a sacrifice that God himself had provided. Right? A shadow or a dim outline that's kind of like, you look at it, you're like, what did that mean? And then when you see Jesus, you're like, that's what it meant. What it always was pointing to. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It did happen. And it happened according to a perfect divine author who had planned the whole thing, weaving in hints and shadows to get us to Jesus that we see clearer from the vantage point of the New Testament. So the ram foreshadows Christ uh, shadows him ahead of time, or is a type of that. Adam was a type, and Jesus is what we could call the anti-type, which isn't like, I don't like types. <laughs> That's just what it's called, right? It's type pointing to anti-type, or shadow, and Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the one casting the body, casting the shadow backward. Paul talks about this same image of Romans 5, and he also addresses it very similarly in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it this very explicitly once again. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Uh, Have any of you ever met someone named Adam? Raise your hand. Ever met anybody named Adam? Okay. (sighs) Okay. Why did they name him that? The Bible says that there was a last Adam and it happened a long time ago. Oh, no. You've got to call him up, tell him to change their names. There can't be any more Adams. Or did it not have to do with the name? It didn't have to do with the name, right? It had to do with the type. There was one type and there was one fulfillment. Jesus is the last or the, well, he's the second and the final Adam. God chose two Adams to represent humanity. And just as God sovereignly ordained that Adam would represent the original human race, so God also sovereignly ordained that Jesus Christ would act as a representative for a new human race. Just as the one man's disobedience, so the one man's righteousness, right? Let's walk through Romans 5 again and see this. Remember our, uh, my little flow? Crime, verdict, punishment. We could also look at it this way. Obedience leading to a verdict leading to a reward. Do you see the parallel aspect of that? The crime is contrasted with obedience. Both receive a verdict And then there's the sentence, as it were. There's the punishment, or there's the reward. And so as we look back at Romans 5, and you're like, why did you skip every other sentence? It was because I want to talk about them now, okay? So the obedience is righteousness. The verdict was guilty. Now it's justified, not guilty, innocent. And then the reward is life, whereas the punishment was death. So just so I feel good, nod your head right now saying that you see the two side by side. It doesn't matter if you do, it just makes me feel good. Otherwise, I have to figure out another way to explain this. Let's look through Romans 5. You still have it? Verse 15. First, Paul sets up the contrast. There's a free gift and there's a trespass. For if many died, that was that punishment, remember? Many died through one man's trespass, that was the crime, much more have the grace of God and the free gift, that's the obedience or the righteousness, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, and the free gift, the obedience, the righteousness, is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but... The free gift, obedience, righteousness, following many trespasses brought justification as a verdict. Justification, again, another one of those words we really need to know. It's when the judge gives the verdict, that thing becomes fact. And the verdict of justified means not guilty to the millionth degree, right? Right? More than just not guilty, but actually positively righteous. So this is the, really the polar opposite of the verdict of guilty. Like we, our system, you have guilty or you have not guilty, our court systems, right? all the Challenge B students, right? Court systems aren't there to prove innocence. Right? It's, all you can get to is not guilty. Yes or uh, can't prove it.? right? That's not the opposite of guilty, is not not guilty. It's innocent, OK? Those are the polar opposites of those two verdicts. And this free gift led to a verdict of justified. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, obedience, reign in life, reward, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, again, uh, the, the clearest statement of this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, obedience, led to justification, the verdict, and life, the reward. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience... The many will be made righteous. Do you remember the frustration that I did everything in me to do to build up in you about the fact that Adam's guilt is yours? Because I was trying to get you frustrated if you didn't see that. Why is Adam's sin imputed to me? I didn't do it. I wasn't there. I don't accept the terms. I don't like it. I hope you like it because you need it to be true. It absolutely must be true. Matter of fact, I'll go this far. The best prologue, the best prologue to the best news in the world is that Adam's sin has been imputed to you. It didn't feel fair. That God would judge you as guilty for a sin that you didn't physically commit, right? Do you remember? I was like, I don't like that. I don't think that's good. I mean, I know I have enough of my own sin. That's good. But but I don't, I, if I'm guilty of a hundred things, I don't want to be accused of 101, right? Despite whatever object- objections that you may have, you must accept it as true and you should rejoice that it is true that God imputed Adam's sin and its guilt to you? Because there is not a greater truth in the universe that God, the righteous judge, will impute to one person something that belongs to someone else. No greater truth. Say it again. There is no greater truth in the universe than God, the righteous judge, will declare that something that one person did can be transferred to another person's account. You see where we're going, right? Because just as by imputation you became guilty of a sin that you didn't commit, it is by imputation that Jesus took your sin on himself. And it is by imputation that you are justified by a righteousness that you did not physically achieve. How much righteousness of your own do you have to offer before God? None. Not a bit. Nothing. Right? So if we want to, right, you can't uh, have the cake and not have to kind of eat it too at the beginning of those type of things. Right? You don't get one without the other. The system rises or falls together. So if by, let's just kind of consider, if Adam sinned, Adam was guilty and Adam died and we're like oh yeah yeah we just follow that example uh, we sin we're guilty we die like pelagius said okay sure like let's just trace that out and now let's think about salvation oh you want life well life is the reward for righteousness how much righteousness do you have you don't have any righteousness if adam is just an example then you are damned in your own sin Okay? If it's just the seed, which again, like Pelagius, that that's heresy. The oh, I was physically present in him. I think it's wrong, but it's not like non-Christian wrong. I think it's just misunderstanding wrong. But let's consider that. Okay, it's like oh, genetically I was in Adam when he sinned, and so I'm guilty because I was there in a sense, and so I suffered death. Okay, how were you genetically connected to Jesus when he committed? those acts of righteousness. So how were you in him physically? What was the nature of the connection? There isn't one, right? So it can't be that either. It can be that God accepts representatives. The guilt of Adam's one sin has been applied to your account, but if you have trusted in Jesus, then the guilt of your many sins were applied to Jesus' account. It's the same process. And his life of obedience has been applied to your account. So now you are as righteous in Jesus as you were guilty in Adam. And as much as you deserve the punishment of death, direct line, you deserve the reward of life because of Jesus. Only Christ can represent us in this way. So as our representative, when Christ was righteous, he was righteous on our behalf. We then inherit as our own the the innocence of his righteousness. And we are subject to the reward for that righteousness because in God's eyes, according to God's judgment, we are righteous. And I did my best to, that was the exact same thing that I said about Adam, with everything about Jesus swapped in. We lived righteously in Jesus before we were even born. We are justified in Jesus. And that verdict, right, on him was cast before we were even born, that he was Shown to be righteous. And we will live in Jesus. And Paul echoes this same thought again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam we are guilty. But in Christ we are forgiven. We see the connection between those two things in Christ in Adam excuse me we are guilty but in Christ we are forgiven and it follows the same path to get us there well let me just to briefly jump over to 1 Corinthians 15 again i was going to tell you to do it by way of homework but I just don't trust you to remember Maybe you do. I forget. That's why I don't trust you to remember because I, told, I tell you to read a passage in the afternoon and I forget by the time I get home. So I just don't believe that you remember either. I heard it stated once that what Christ has done for those who are in him is so much greater than what Adam has done for those who are in him. Use Keith's phrase from last week. This is unquestionably the greatest of reversals. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. I'm just going to read this, doing my best to not give any comments. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, like buried, see? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. And this is talking about Adam. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Christ, is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You might find yourself saying, I don't feel guilty in Adam. (laughs) I don't think so. it may very well be the case that you don't feel guilty the guilt of adam's sin uh, this might be the very first time you heard that god considers you guilty of adam's first sin but it is true nonetheless what we feel about ourselves and, and even what we are aware of about ourselves must be submitted to the absolute truth of what god says about us and i don't i don't get it that i'm in adam well you don't have to, but you are. Right? I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I didn't know that about myself. That's that's fine. You do now, but you were in Adam even when you weren't aware of it. Because that's what God says. And that same idea really can very easily be echoed into, you know, I don't feel righteous in Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that. I think about just different things, like, I'm just not sure that that one's true. And I think that that faced John's readers in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. Whenever our believers, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything, right? God's facts are greater than our feelings. I don't feel righteous in Jesus. It's because we've overlooked the gospel. How often do we do that? How how often as saints, the children of God, do we overlook or or forget the truths of the gospel? If you have trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, you may not feel righteous before God. You, You may not know that you are righteous before God. But God says that by faith in Jesus, God says that you are righteous in Jesus. Perfectly righteous. And it's his verdict that matters, not yours. Perfectly righteous, permanently clothed with the spotless, shining righteousness of Jesus. That righteousness, a life of never doing any sin and always doing what was right, that has been imputed to you. It is now on your account. Praise God, it's not just put it in your hands. Oh, you would mess it up. And so would I, right? John Bunyan, I think it was, having written about that, struggling with his faith, then comes to the truth. He's walking out in a field. Um, I'm quoting somebody who's quoting him, so bear with me a little bit. But he's walking through a field and then it hits him. It's kind of like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Am I righteous enough? It's like, no, you're not. He said, oh, but my righteousness is in heaven. I can't mess it up even if I try right? Like you give a a multi-million dollar inheritance to a 13-year-old, it's going to be gone. You find ways to spend it. They're going to screw it up. Whatever is given to us in our sinfulness, we're going to mess up. Righteousness hasn't been put into your hands. Righteousness has been put on your account. He said, oh, my righteousness is Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. I'm fine." That's what it means to be righteous in Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church says, oh yeah, that righteousness is just fused into you. Now go, try really hard. Man, I really hate that whole try really hard. You ever tried really hard and still recognize the fact? Yeah, but what about that corruption? I'm lousy. And Paul says, no, Jesus is your wisdom. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your sanctification, right? It's all his on the account. So when you get there, and you stand before the judge, the verdict, like the case is over, actually. Verdict has been declared, so you don't arrive for sentencing, you you arrive for reward. Because the righteousness of Jesus is just there waiting for you. That's why we sang that, right? This is coming, because all those, the dead in Christ who arise beforehand, right? all obsessed with Jesus, gazing on their righteousness with human eyes once again. Right? Like, that's what we need. And if we could just get this, right? Righteousness of Jesus transferred to your account. He paid your sin debt in full and shares with you all of his riches of righteousness. You would have to be more righteous than Jesus in order to be more righteous before God than you are right now. Do you get that? Like, If if you want God to, to love you more and to accept you more, then you have to find more righteousness than Jesus has because you have his righteousness right now. Perfect, divine righteousness is already yours by faith. You can't be more righteous than Jesus. So you cannot be more perfect, more righteous before God than you are right now. You can't be. It is impossible in all of the universe for you to be more righteous in God's eyes than you are if you have the righteousness of Jesus. (sighs) Oh, that we would grasp this truth how it would change us, how it would change our gratitude to God, how it would change our worship of God. How it would change our confidence in prayer, boldly approach the throne. How it would change our confession of sin before our Father. <laughs> like, I'm righteous. I'm welcome. Yeah, yeah, here's everything else. Please take this away. Please change me. I don't want to be like this anymore. How it would change our relationships with others. How forgiving we would be how loving and joyful and kind and patient and merciful we would be as this truth transforms us. We'd want to fall down in front of Jesus' feet and take the most expensive ointment we could have and pour it on there and just, just shame ourselves before him in love because who really cares what else anybody else thinks? You have Jesus. How much more like Jesus we would be if we would grasp And live in the truth of all that he has done for us. Just so much greater than what Adam did to us and for us. Today, right now, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. That means that God either considers you guilty and sinful in Adam or forgiven and righteous in Christ. Those are the only two options. And for all of eternity, those will also still be the only two realities. Those who persist in Adam to the point of death will suffer the punishment of the guilty. And those who have trusted in Jesus and are in Christ will forever enjoy the reward of the righteous. You were born in Adam. But you must believe in Christ to be in Christ. Don't be foolish or stubborn in your sin, making excuses, denying guilt, shifting blame, trying to escape, trying to earn your own righteousness. Don't be a fool. Don't be stubborn in that, right? Trust in Jesus. And all that is his will be yours. He will be yours forever. Trust in Jesus. Father, you are wonderful in that you imputed Adam's guilt to us so that in that same righteousness you could impute Jesus to us. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Please open our eyes to see this and our ears to hear it and our hearts to believe in it that we might be transformed and you might be glorified. Amen.